Hey everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that doesn't focus on just the horror, but all the beautiful writing in between. So I'm super excited to be with you guys today because we are presenting our first short short story collection of the podcast. So short stories are super near and dear to my heart as that is what started it all with me and Mr. King. It's how we fell in love and I really enjoy diving into them as much as I can because I think they're an amazing examination of Stephen King's genius. I think with short stories you really get to see his writing talent because in general short stories are really challenging. Um, when you're in fiction class I many of my students get so upset that they have page limits because they're amazing ideas once they start jotting down the character and the plot and setting they're already you know, eight pages past our our school, our classroom page limit, and they're already super upset. And so they get mad because I don't curve the page limit. And I have to kind of explain to them, that's why you have to work at it, guys. You have to work at crafting your short story in a small space in under under 15 pages. Um, at the grad school level, they gave us 25 pages, but you need to make your audience care. You need to create that character. You need to create that plot, the conflict, the final act in that small space and wrap everything up for the reader in this tiny window. And it's a super tall order. And in my investigation, I think Mr. King loves it. I think he just thrives on the challenge of it. He just dives into it. He's like a bull seeing red with the short story parameters. You could tell it's a way for him to just flex his muscles and be this master chef who just goes into a kitchen and there's only four ingredients and he makes, you know, a masterpiece and that's what Stephen King does. He has very little room to work and he just creates these glimmering, shining, memorable tales that are super incredible. So he's on that level of shocking talent for me and the short stories really prove that because anybody who's attempted creative writing and the short story form is is very challenging. So I really tip my hat to him and I really nerd out when I get into these short story collections because what he's able to accomplish in such a small space is pretty awesome and inspiring. So for me, um, I think short stories are a great place to begin a Stephen King journey if you've never dipped your toe in the water. Um, in my opinion, I think like each collection is a unique box of chocolates. Even the ones that aren't your favorite chocolates are still going to taste good. Um, the, I think they're all delicious and unique and what I like about them is each one, whether it's, you know, a, a terrifying, just <laughs> dive off the deep end into this treacherous minefield of the imagination, or it's what I'd like to call a quiet gem, um, they're absolutely delicious and they provide so much fuel for literary analysis which is my favorite hobby. I love looking at a short story and just putting it under the microscope and my little autopsy and uh, diving in. So if you're someone who's never read Stephen King before, I highly, highly recommend that you choose a short story collection as maybe your first experience because it's, it's a wonderful adventure of tasty morsels. They're all unique. They are all offering something different and fun and um, you're also really seeing some writing talent and what I like is there's usually a mixed bag between something that's got a thrill involved, something a little suspenseful, and then something that's got a deep emotional impact, which I don't know if many fans are exploring or talking about that in, in the kind of detail I would like. But 
if you consider yourself a constant reader, um, which is the sort of um, community, the Stephen King community um, is what we call the diehard fans, and if you're a regular indulger and ingester of Stephen King and you don't do the short stories because you have heard that they're just not as scary or you've only read the scary stories and you bypassed the other ones, I highly recommend having a nice palette cleanse and maybe choosing a short story collection, especially the ones that are underrated, not really frequently read, um, and I even more recommend you pick up a volume of short stories that maybe you know is not scary. Um, and this is just to refresh you on how amazingly talented uh, Stephen King is in these moments on the page, and you might have missed some really great writing. So for you constant readers, I recommend um, let's cleanse the palette, palette and let's go back in the catalog to some of these collections. So this collection in particular was published in 2002, and in the American hardcover it's about 459 pages. What's unique is that the actual title of this collection is Everything's Eventual 14 Dark Tales. And I don't know if I agree with that. I do not believe all 14 are dark. I think there's at least two or three in this collection that aren't dark at all, and they're kind of sweet, kind of sentimental, kind of, you know, um, melancholy for sure, but I I would not call them dark. So I, I kind of wish that the branding marketing department maybe wouldn't have put that on the on the book. However, if Mr. King put it on the book, of, of course, of course, but I, I don't know if he did. I wonder if he would want to maybe, I, I don't know if he's somebody who continues to want to be um, siloed into the horror genre only arena. I don't know, but he's also, he's like, he's the king of the mountain. He's on the top of the mountain and he's the only competitor is himself. So I don't know. I don't know what he wants. So, um, what, what do you guys think? You can definitely let me know. So as we go forward, I just wanted to uh, let everybody know that I'll be gently circling around direct spoilers. I won't reveal how the stories end, but I'm going to provide some background info on the stories as well as um, we're going to talk about some plot, some synopsis, details. Um, so if you're interested in this collection and you want to remain super spoiler-free, please hold off on this episode until you are finished and you're ready. Uh, so definitely don't go forward. I don't want to ruin anything for you. I'm, uh, I do my best to never full-on talk about you know, XYZ, here's how it went down, but I, I am going to dig in a little bit and reveal some things uh, about the characters and some of the, um, the meat in the story. But if you're game and ready, uh, we're going to dive in to what's unique about the collection. I'm going to give you a text excerpt. Uh, we'll look at what's working in the in the text, what's not so strong in this collection, and then we're going to do a little bit of heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, as well as my final suggestions, and that's how we'll round out the episode. So this one in particular is a little different because um, usually my section on heroes, villains, and honorable mentions has a significant amount of content and points, but it's going to be a little smaller because there's more content in what's working and what's unique, mostly because we don't spend too much time with the characters in these stories. However, there's one or two that definitely make a big impact in the small space they appear in, so we'll talk about those and why they resonate a little deeper than most, but that section's going to be a little smaller than it normally would in some of my novel analyses. So just something to keep in mind, I'm not going to have too much content on there, I'm only going to have like maybe one to two points, and then the bulk of it will be in the other sections, but if you are ready, uh, I'm ready, so let's go ahead and dive in to what's unique about Everything's Eventual.
Okay friends, before we start examining what's unique about this short story collection, I wanted to share a really fun part about having the physical text of a short story collection by Stephen King. What's really sweet and really fun is he always includes either a little blurb before the story begins or after the story begins, kind of like a mini author forward or afterward where he talks about where he wrote it, what was going on at the time, what inspired it, where he was in the world, uh, how he's read it to other audiences and how they responded. And it really creates this mini bond, I think, with, with the author, as well as with the story itself. You're kind of going into it knowing it's lived a little bit of life and been experienced. And I don't know, it makes the whole thing more dynamic and really special. So I wanted to share a little blurb an example of this from one of my favorite stories in the collection called LT's Theory of Pets. This is toward the bottom of page 265 in the American hardcover, and he writes, I had a marvelous time working on it, and whenever I'm called upon to read a story out loud, this is the one I choose, always assuming I have the required 50 minutes it takes. It makes people laugh, and I like that. What I like even more is the unexpected shift in tone, away from humor and towards sadness and horror, which occurs near the end. When it comes, the reader's defenses are down, and the story's emotional payoff is a little higher. For me, that emotional payoff is what it's all about. I want to make you laugh or cry when you read a story, or do both at the same time. I want your heart, in other words. If you want to learn something, go to school. So I loved that. I love, uh, I also really enjoyed getting a little bit of a preview with what to expect with a story like that because, oh my goodness, guys, LT's Theories of, of Pets is quite a roller coaster. It's so enjoyable. It's absolutely uh, a jaunty ride with fun characters. There's animals in it. There's a lot of comedy. I laughed out loud in several moments. And then all of a sudden, you take a sharp turn right off a cliff in terms of tone. And I, I'm pretty sure during my first reading, my mouth just fell open. My jaw was pretty much on the floor a little bit. So we're actually gonna talk more about that individual story in the heroes, villains, and honorable mentions section. Um, but for right now, what I wanted to first mention about what's unique about Everything's Eventual, my first point is the stories that have roots in historical fantasy, or another way I've heard it referred to is fantasy history. And the most current example I can kind of plug in for that is if you've seen Quentin Tarantino films, some recent ones, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Inglorious Bastards. These are super fun movies in regards to they take historical moments, actual moments in history, and really flip them upside down and make them to a, a fantasy scenario where what actually goes down would have been what the way everybody would have wanted to go down. Um, and so I think that we see that here in this collection. Um, the first place we see that is in the story called The Death of Jack Hamilton. And this one's really fun because it's about John Dillinger and John Dillinger's gang. And so if you really like being immersed in the 1930s and feeling that gangster cops and robbers vibe, this is wonderful. I guess Jack Hamilton is a friend of Mr. Dillinger and he is shot in one of the subsequent run-ins with cops and bad guys and historically speaking it took him a while to finally pass away and so this was kind of a cool look at that um, on how it's how they tried uh, to get him help and ease his pain and uh, all the while you're immersed in this 1930s world and I really enjoyed it. John Dillinger is, is really cool in this story. I think that King wrote him with a lot of kindness and heart and really made him seem like quite the Robin Hood figure, which was cool. 
So that fantasy history, uh, I liked seeing that in that story. And then the other place we see it is a story called In the Death Room, where we have a journalist who's being interrogated and tortured somewhere in South America. It's a little unclear. And Pablo Escobar's there. He's just there in, in the room and he has some moments of dialogue and he's pretty believable and the scenario is pretty believable. And so that was kind of interesting to just kind of have Pablo Escobar there. This next one isn't necessarily historical fantasy, but this is another one of my favorites in the collection, and it takes place in 1914, and so I really enjoyed being immersed in that time period for just a little bit. Um, that story is called The Man in the Black Suit, and this one we're going to be talking about in more detail a little bit later, but this one is a prize winner, I believe it won the O. Henry Award, and the little boy Gary is in 1914 and I think um, Mr. King paints a wonderful like day-to-day -day milieu of being in a rural place in in the early 1900s and so it's it's a really nice slice of life for for that time period so I enjoyed that a lot um, the other area of this this collection that I think is enjoyable is the notion of potential story seedlings. So this this point I'm going to make is a little bit of a nerdy rabbit hole potentially. It's a bit of a reach, but I think there's some validity to it. Um, so with story seedlings, some of the stories I was reading in this collection, having read the majority of my Stephen King novels in the last, uh, focusing on the last two decades, there were some stories that just really made me wonder about, I wonder if this story is in fact the little sproutling that led to the full-blown novel. For example, there's a, a creepy little firecracker story in here called The Road Virus Heads North. It's a very gothic tale about a painting that comes to life in a very sinister way. Very, very reminiscent of The Portrait of Dorian Gray, the classic novel by Oscar Wilde. If you enjoyed Oscar Wilde's um, tale, this one is so cool and I think you'll like it a lot. Um, Whereas Oscar Wilde's, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's about a young man who sells his soul to the devil for, in order to attain youth and beauty forever. And so he, he does so, he remains young and beautiful, but there's a portrait of him, a painting in his home that is the thing that ages and it also becomes extremely diseased and as Dorian com commits heinous acts and depravity the painting sort of shows the deterioration of his soul so it's amazing it's one of the best gothic texts but the road virus heads north about art coming to life which is so cool um, really made me wonder if it did lead to the novel in 2008, Duma Key, which we're actually going to be talking about here pretty soon on the podcast because I love that novel, you guys. That one is fantastic. It's a gothic beach tale where a young man named Edgar goes to Florida to start a new life after an injury and he picks up painting. And as he's painting, he's realizing that there's something much more going on with the paintings. They're not exactly coming to life physically, but stuff is happening around him and especially concerning the subjects that he paints. So it's tremendous. It's, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm going to start nerding out on Duma Key. So before I do that, um, I'm going to transition to the second area of, or the second story where I felt might have been a story seedling, which was the title story called Everything's Eventual. This one was a lot of fun, and it's about a young guy named Dink, and the inspiration for this story in one of the author forward notes, King writes, he was just driving around one day and he saw some guy dumping a jar of coins into the sewer. And he just was instantly inspired and had to write a story about it. 
So the one he writes is about a grocery store clerk named Dink, He's, which is such a cute name, it's so great. He has these special abilities, he is a little bit telepathic, and he is recruited and sort of procured by this mysterious agency or society that, you know, they arrive at his house mysteriously and fill up his fridge with food and give him fresh clothes in his drawers, all because they're trying to get him to plug into this mysterious initiative assignment where he's using his gifts for mm, for uh, some shady government stuff, is, is all I'm going to say. Um, he's got a, the character of Dink has to make some difficult choices with his gift and with the task that he's been assigned. This story is very, very similar to 2019's novel, The Institute. So I read The Institute just last Christmas, and while it doesn't feature adults like this story does, Everything's Eventual, it is about children. And the main character, Lucas, is a young preteen who is kidnapped. He's taken to this secret facility where he and these other children who all have telepathic or telekinetic abilities are being jailed and tortured, unfortunately. Tortured mostly to enhance their abilities. And they also are assigned to some sort of shady political, government, conspiratorial assignments. So, I wonder. So this, this sort of area, this point, is mainly for um, constant readers or those in the community that are plugged in. Um, so if you are not a Stephen King reader, no worries. This is just a rabbit hole. Um, this is a little bit of um, uh, a, a nerdy path I'm going down um, as as what happens will, will happen sometimes. I'll try to make it as brief as possible, but uh, so that's kind of what I noticed. It made me a little bit excited about, um, I wonder, because uh, the novels, we, we're not going to talk about the Institute for um, at least upcoming, but we are going to talk about Duma Key. And so I wonder if some of these short stories gave birth to some of these bigger novels, which is pretty cool. So before we head over to the what's working section, I did have a text of, or I didn't have a chunk of text from um, LT's Theory of Pets that I wanted to share with you because it's really cool and it kind of has one of King's a lovable life nuggets that I enjoy so much. I really, really love when he just slays <laughs> with these these lines that kind of stop you in your tracks and get you thinking. So uh, let me let me tell you guys about that one. This is on page 284 in the American hardcover, and uh, let's uh, let's buckle up for some for some zingers. She grunted. It's this hateful sound of skepticism she makes sometimes. After almost 30 years of marriage, that sound still makes me want to turn on her and yell at her to stop it, to shit or get off the pot, either say what she means or keep quiet. This time I thought about telling her how Elty had cried, how it had been like there was a cyclone inside of him, tearing loose everything that wasn't nailed down. I thought about it, but I didn't. Women don't trust tears from men. They may say different, but deep down, they don't trust tears from men. Oh my goodness. So that was one where I kind of just paused for a second and every now and again you just get this like little uh, literary gut punch where the author breaks through and kind of holds, grabs the sides of your head and you're like, oh, okay, I'm paying attention now. So I really enjoyed that. We're going to hear a little bit more about LT's theory of pets um, in a little bit because that one is such a, a very cool story here in the collection. Um, so let's go ahead and segue into what's working in this collection and what's not.
Okay, everyone, let's go ahead and jump into what's working in this story. My favorite aspect of this collection is, and what I feel is just twinkling like the most bright star, is the elements of the gothic. We have several stories in this collection that really channel that classic gothic novel vibe. Um, the big breakout story that was turned into a big Hollywood movie that I'm going to talk about in greater detail in the next section is 1408, where we have a super haunted hotel room in New York City and the main character Mike Enslin is just not a believer and really spooky, very gothic. Um, the second tale that embraces the gothic I mentioned a little bit before, uh, The Road Virus Heads North, about a painting coming to life. And then the last one that I feel is just gothic with a capital G is this story, Riding the Bullet, which is a really cool one about a young man hitchhiking to see his dying mother and he gets picked up by a dead guy. Uh, it's not exactly a ghost, but it's ghost-esque, and there's a moonlit graveyard, there's mist in the graveyard, there's all of those sort of gothic elements that I feel are working so well. Um, channeling the gothic, I think, is always nice to identify. Um, when you look at some of the classic Brit Brit-lit novels like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and Sherlock Holmes, in particular, The Hound of Baskervilles. All of those are in the moors, the British moors, which is just this dark, windy, misty, desolate wasteland where the sinister sort of comes out and we have those elements. We see that again in Frankenstein as well, just the elements of the gothic are really working well here and I always really enjoy when I see them in Stephen King's short stories because it connects him to the classic sort of H.P. Lovecraft, the old school way of crafting a story that's steeped in horror, but also in, in classic literature a little bit by exploring those really age-old elements that are still working. So it reminded me of a lot of those classic gothic texts and um, I was happy to see them in this in this story in these stories. Um, so the other thing, the other uh, point number two is I feel working strongly is the uncomfortable or the experimental. So there's one story in this collection called, it's kind of a long title, that feeling you can only say what it is in French. It is a very trippy story. It's written in a very complex and puzzling way because uh, Mr. King is literally playing with the notion of deja vu. So he's writing about deja vu and doom and it's unsettling, it's mysterious, and it really reminds me of sort of David Lynch films as well as that uh, the film Donnie Darko, if you guys remember that from a couple years ago starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I, um, as I mentioned in some of the other episodes, I'm, I'm a sensitive Sally. I'm a little delicate flower. So I'll, although I can appreciate sort of the, the cerebral film noir creep outs, Donnie Darko, um, was a difficult one for me, mostly due to Frank the Bunny, which is the monstrous rabbit apparition that Donnie sees throughout the film. It is the most terrifying creature mask ever, you guys. Um, if you're curious, Google it or watch the film or don't and be better for it, I think. But um, this story, um, that feeling you can only say what it is in French, really just reminded me so much of like a, a David Lynch film, but I enjoyed um, the way it was written. It's really strange and very cool, um, and uh, I 
if you liked Donnie Darko, you'll enjoy this story a lot. There's a lot of similar elements, and uh, it connected me to it straight away. Very, very unsettling in one of those, it's, it's like one of those stories where you wake up from a nap and you're really disorientated and you're really off, you're just in a kind of hazy, chaotic brain zone. That's what that story's like. So I think the experimental and the uncomfortable is working quite well. Um, the other area that I think is also working well is humor. We do have a few stories that, although they're dark, they they make me laugh. Um, one of them, it's just sort of uncomfortable laugh due to maybe just stress as the reader, but um, the first story that's a little funny is actually the very first one in the collection, and it's called Autopsy Room 4, and the main protagonist is fully conscious on the morgue table. So it's really exploring sort of humans' greatest, <laughs> many humans' greatest fears about being al buried alive or people think you're dead and you're not. Like you're being, you know, wheeled into the cremation chamber and you are not dead. So it's it's creepy but very comical because our our narrator is fully conscious. He knows exactly what's going on and he's about to be sliced open on the morgue table. And so it's it's a fun narrative but it definitely makes me laugh just out of sheer discomfort. It ends in a way that was surprising and and uh, comical, so I kind of I enjoyed that one a lot for humor. And then the second story um, is called Lunch at the Gotham Gaff Cafe. And if any of you listening are in the restaurant industry, this story is for you. It is, <laughs> it is a delight of discomfort. And um, our main character—I'm uh, totally spacing on his name right now. Forgive me. He is. At the beginning of the story, he's really blindsided by divorce papers from his wife, and there's about two days time in which he's going to meet her and her lawyer in New York City for lunch at the Gotham Cafe. And in those two days, he decides it would be wise to quit smoking. He's like a two-pack-a-day smoker, and he decides to quit smoking and puts himself in the most uncomfortable, you know, withdrawal, hijacking of his mind and body that one can maybe do. So he's just stressed within an inch of his life when he heads to the lunch uh, with his soon-to-be ex-wife. And then what unfolds at this restaurant is just insane. <laughs> insane and absolutely like shenanigans like just uh, oh my god absurd it's it's channeling the absurd and just r the ridiculous and if you do have the american hardcover the um the art on the the hardcover art kind of features scenes from this restaurant and there's even a line sort of directly out of the story where there's a blood drop in a water glass so that's kind of cool to kind of see this story come to life in art a little bit but if you're a Monty Python fan and just sort of, if you can imagine the Monty Python blood spray where it's just like a shooting hose, that's a little bit about what happens in, in this story in terms of the absurdity, the ridiculous, the, the just shockingly like, what? Um, delightful. It's a delightful read, um, and I, I think there's a couple stress laughs associated with it, but if you work in the service industry, please read this. I think your day will be better for it, or it'll at least be, you just, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's one where I, th I hope you laugh. I really do hope you laugh, even if it's just a stress laugh. And then, um, the other area, let's see, um, the other area that I feel is also working really well is a chunk that I'd like to call my quiet gems. And so I, I kind of mentioned this a little bit um, at the beginning of the episode where um, 
I don't feel all the stories in this collection are dark and there are two that are somber and melancholy and really lovely and I feel that even though there's not a big exciting you know volcanic explosion of of reveal and um, and cliffhanger it's it's just like this lovely little story that kept me thinking about them and one of them uh, is entitled all that you love will be carried away and this is very poetic little quiet story where the main character really he's a traveling salesman and as he works his way across the country in little roadside stops and gas stations he enjoys the sort of random graffiti he finds in bathrooms on the sides of walls um just anywhere he could find it and he writes it down in a notebook and he keeps it with him and he reflects on them as he travels from place to place and a lot of them are just really dumb um you know men's bathroom sexual innuendo and it's misspelled and it's really stupid and silly but he treasures it in a little bit in, in a little in in this way where um, he writes it down and he reflects on it and even though it's dumb he doesn't view it as dumb he kind of sees something there he sees it as art and it's quiet and meditative and really lovely and then the the additional component of the story is that he's really struggling with wanting to end his life and so the the reader is sort of viewing those two things as his um, desire to maybe give up on life. He has a wife and children and yet he's on this lonely road traveling from place to place selling things he's not very passionate about but he treasures these little um, sort of gold nuggets which are random sentences in gas station bathrooms. So this story was short and sweet but very um, ethereal, ephemeral, but it made such an impact. Um, the other story that made an impact is at the end of the collection, it's the last story we have, and it's called Lucky Quarter, and it's about a maid in Carson City, Nevada. Her name's Darlene, and she's cleaning a, a room, and the little envelope that I guess is left to give the maids a tip has a note and one quarter inside, and the quarter says this quarter is or pardon me, the note says, this quarter is lucky, and lucky is spelled L-U-C-K-E-Y. And so our narrator, or pardon me, um, Darlene, yeah, our narrator, she just starts laughing uncontrollably, tears fall out, and, and then the narration sort of goes into this zone where she is in fantasy and in imagination where she wants to go downstairs and put the quarter in a slot machine and get a couple dollars under her belt and then she takes that to the roulette table and just cleans house and it's it's melancholy and sweet she's a single mom with two kids she needs everything in life she's strapped in all ways and i i loved her story and it's it's not dark i don't feel it's more somber more melancholy and thinking about both of these stories separately actually i really wish that the main character in all that you loved will be carried away and then darlene could be together somehow or meet up in their own story and it could be a little joining of the lonely hearts club or something because these two stories parallel each other greatly where it's these individuals with somewhat broken hearts and they're bouncing around in life feeling very sad and very lost and I, I think that th these stories are very much like functional looks in a fashion show. For example, you know, if you're looking at a collection like a fashion show, you have your showstopper looks who that just, you know, are stunning and completely take everyone's breath away and then you have the functional outfits that are like oh okay and they don't really get a lot of oohs and ahs but they are they they're essential they're necessary and i think these stories are necessary it's like most of these stories in the collection are meaty and delicious but it's like can you eat 
10 pounds of steak in a sitting or do you need a side salad? <laughs> you know, I think we need we need some starches, we need some greens. And these stories, these these quiet gems are the the side salad I think we all need in the collection. I don't find them dark at all. I find them lovely and sometimes I was surprised that they make a, a strong impact even though they are um, they don't have a lot going on in them. It's really just like uh, a small little quick Polaroid of, of somebody in in their in their life and I really really enjoyed that. So I would love to hear what you guys think about these quiet gems. But I want to also talk about two areas of this collection that I don't feel are working well. They may be a little bit of a hot button, in which case I'm thrilled to hear from you guys on what you think because I may have just missed the boat with it and may uh, need to reread it. But there are two areas of this collection um, that I'm not crazy about. The first one is there is a story inside this collection called The Little Sisters of Aluria. This is a 100% dark tower story, guys. This is a, not only is it a dark tower story, it's a dark tower novella, and it goes on for 54 pages. And, oh man, it's too long, guys. It's just too long. I really tried to get into it. I, I know a little bit about Roland and Midworld, but... You know, this short story collection is about average people encountering the the macabre, encountering the, encountering the mysterious, you know, reflecting on the spooky moments in life or um, what have you. And then we get this giant dark tower fantasy side track, you know, like side tangent here. It goes on for a really long time. And... The details inside of it were very cool. I could, I was really enjoying the character descriptions of the sisters um, and just the world that Roland was traveling in, but it raised more questions than I would have liked. I was just wondering, like, where is this in the canon? Like, is this pre-Gunslinger? Is this, like, where, where are we? Is what should I be paying attention to? What, you know, the author's note before the story begins um, Steve says that he wrote it for as a novella for a different fantasy publication and that he doesn't feel you have to have read the Dark Tower series to enjoy it, but I disagree. I vehemently disagree. I was really unable to get into it, especially this is about, this story occurs f about four stories into the collection. And, you know, we're, we're rocking and rolling, we're, we're enjoying these stories, and then you just get this giant chunk of, of random. And it's a bit like if you were watching a fashion show, this would be the part where there would be a naked person on a unicycle that just rides out and you're like, what? What's going on? This makes no sense at all. That's how I felt with this story. Um, I couldn't appreciate it and I, I definitely think I need to reread it and maybe um, on the second read I would enjoy it a little bit more, but it was challenging to get through the first go-round mostly because I, I felt that it just is not working in the collection and I, I really wanted some more Dark Tower background. I, I was confused. It was, I just don't feel it should have been put in this collection. So maybe after having read Dark Tower, I will have had a pre, I'll, I'll appreciate it more, but I'd love to hear from you guys, especially Tower, Tower Junkies and Tower Heads. If you guys have, if you would read this story and you can write me and let me know if maybe I really do need to read Dark Tower in order to appreciate it or if I just missed something and if you're able to sort of suspend what you know about Roland's adventure and maybe I just missed it. So I would love to hear from you guys on that one. And then the last point that I also feel is not working and this might be a little controversial but 
I mentioned the story Riding the Bullet, which is another gothic tale. The first half of it is fantastic, but the ending of Riding the Bullet, guys, I was very disappointed. And this is challenging for me because I always want to give 10,000 pounds of slack for Stephen King's endings because I feel that an entire novel journey should not be crapped on for one to two pages of strangeness. I know that many people disagree and feel like the no the ending of the novel is just as important as the journey, but I really don't. I think that it's the journey that's worth worthwhile and, you know, endings are hard and you know, they're they're not always going to satisfy people, but this is one where the ending was so was done in such a way that really made the story as a whole I, I was unable to reconcile it. I really was. Um, so I want to read you the first paragraph of Riding the Bullet because it's so kick-ass. It's so great. I'm just absolutely dialed in from this first paragraph. He establishes just commanding narration and character and the tone and the spookiness and I'm just dialed in. So I want to read this for you and kind of give you a little carrot of what's going down and then I want to talk about on how it kind of fizzles a little bit without revealing um, too many spoilers. So in the American hardcover, this is page 405. I've never told anyone this story and never thought I would, not because I was afraid of being disbelieved exactly, but because I was ashamed and because it was mine. I've always felt that telling it would cheapen both me and the story itself, make it smaller and more mundane no more than a camp counselor's ghost story told before lights out. I think I was also afraid that if I told it, heard it with my own ears, I might start to disbelieve it myself. But since my mother died, I haven't been able to sleep very well. I doze off and then snap back again, wide awake and shivering. Leaving the bedside lamp on helps, but not as much as you think. There are so many more shadows at night. Have you ever noticed that? Even with the light on, there are so many shadows. The long ones could be the shadows of anything, you think. Anything at all. So that's pa that's the first introduction to this story. It's so great. Um, and we have Alan Parker, who's a college student, and he gets word that his mother had a stroke. He doesn't have a car, so he has to hitchhike to her. So the first person he hitchhikes with is a creepy old guy, and he gets really uncomfortable and jumps out. And then the second hitchhike person who picks him up happens after he is waiting in a graveyard on a super bright moonlit night and he reads the headstone and I forget that guy's first name but it's Staub his last name Mr. Staub and um, a, a Mustang drives past him stops and Alan gets in and uh, the guy introduces himself as uh, Mr. Staub uh, I think his name is Jerry I don't remember um, so What's so awesome in that scene is we have the most unexpected, uncomfortable, tension-filled exchange between them. And one thing that I love about Stephen King is he treats the reader as a very intelligent creature. He really treats each reader as though they are very smart. And I love that because he knows that as you're reading, you're trying to decode the puzzle and you know, sort of jump two steps ahead and you're already assuming what's going to happen and you're already looking for the clues and the plot holes and anything you could do to just find out and discover the answer. And in my experience, he's always two steps ahead of you every time. He's always like two chess moves that you're not expecting. And he does that in this story so well to where when Alan's in the car with a dead guy driving, you're just like, oh my god, it's gonna happen this way. And it's it's completely different. There's It just is a very cool exchange. It's uncomfortable. It's The tension's palpable. It's awesome. And then... When Alan gets to the hospital and he gets out of the car, it's as if this story was a balloon full of helium and somebody puts a tack in it and it doesn't pop 
it just slowly loses air and slowly fizzles until it's just a shriveled piece of latex on the ground. And I felt the adrenaline drop so much in this story, guys, that by the time we reached the end, I was really like, screw this, man. Like, what? Um, and I, I was just very uncomfortable with it and it kind of tarnished the whole story for me which is unique I that doesn't happen very often with me usually I'm always I never really put much stock into the endings because I know that they can be a little bit divisive and I, I'm always like uh, let's not even focus on that. Let's just focus on the good stuff. I couldn't even focus on the good stuff that much with this one, guys. It was just too much of an adrenaline drop. It was, uh, there. I, I think I needed one last punch or one last little spike in the narrative before it ended. Just one last something to, uh, you know, you take me on a thrill ride and it's as if, you know, we have a couple really good loops in the roller coaster and then we, and then it just stops. And so I, I was a little disappointed to where that disappointment seeped into my entire reading of the story, which is sad because as I read from that first paragraph, it's so good. It's so good. But the ending is such a drop off for me that I don't know. So this is one I would love to hear from you guys on. Um, it was released ahead of this collection. Writing the Bullet got a lot of um, press because back in the day, uh, in the days of old, when the e-reader was just born, when Amazon Fire and Kindle were just sort of coming onto the scene, this story was offered to all new purchasers of the e-reader. And so everybody got to experience the um, the first sort of like e-story and that was riding the bullet. And so Stephen King in his first note says, you know, he doesn't really know if people like this story for the actual story or if they like it because they read it on their Kindle and it was really new and fresh at that time. But uh, this is one I would love to hear from you guys because maybe I missed something. Maybe there was less of a balloon stabbing than I thought and maybe I'm looking, maybe I just need to look at it a different way. I am totally open to doing that because uh, as I've mentioned in in uh, other episodes, these books are always open. They're always open for us to sift around and dig in. So please let me know what you guys think of Under, or pardon me, not Under, um, Under the Dome, of course. <laughs> let me know what you think of Under the Dome. But tell me about riding the bullet. So having said that, what I feel is working um, in this collection, the first one being Elements of the Gothic, the second is the experimental or the uncomfortable. We have one or two stories that are really written in a confusing, cool, trippy way. Um, the third is humor. We've got some really good, uncomfortable and genuine laugh, laughy ones. And then we've got those quiet gems that I'd like for you guys to look at. Um, those are my four categories that I feel are um, just doing super well in this collection. And then for my negatives, Little Sisters of Aloria, I just cannot, you guys. And then um, Riding the Bullet. It was too big of a letdown for me to hold it in high esteem. So those are my thoughts on this section. And let's go ahead and segue into a smaller portion of Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mentions. friends, let's go ahead and conclude our investigation of Everything's Eventual with a smaller chunk of heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. Usually this area is a lot bigger um, and more meaty due to the fact that Steven is the ultimate character writer, but given the nature of the short stories, we don't have too, too many, um, uh, we don't have too much time with these characters, but there are a few I did want to talk about with you. Um, so one of my favorite stories in the collection, as I mentioned before, is The Man in the Black Suit. And 
the character of Gary is so tremendous and he is such a hero to me uh, based on what he survives in this little tale. It's very reminiscent for those of you who have read Stephen King's novel of It. It's definitely one of his most famous works, and rightly so because it might be one of the best novels of all time. And I know that the story gets pretty overshadowed by Pennywise the Clown and all of that marketing of the clown, and it's iconic. It most definitely is. But what's interesting about It is you have these young kids, and I think they're all 13 and younger, are wandering around Maine in the 50s and they're riding their bikes and they're being kids and they're playing in creeks and then sometimes they are walking alone and they're by themselves and then these incredibly terrifying traumatizing things happen to them and they're altered forever and the silver lining in it is that all these kids find each other and share the collective trauma they've experienced and they help each other through it and it's the most beautiful story of friendship I've ever read in my life um, up until this point at least so uh, what's nice is that they find each other but in the man in the black suit the character of Gary is alone when he goes through this um, but this story really shows King in his best form when he's writing about childhood and memory and trauma and so in this story we have Gary as an old man when he begins the tale. Uh, he's really old. He's in his 90s. I actually think he may be in a nursing home. And he talks about this one day when he was nine years old and he went fishing and he met a man in a black suit and it changed his life forever. Um, so it's really an amazing story and Gary is just this precious little guy and he's innocent and hopeful and just happy-go-lucky and his mom packs him some sandwiches. He's got his little wicker basket to put his fish in. He says goodbye to his little Scottish terrier and walks to the river to catch some fish and the man in the black suit, what I will say is he's He's really tall and very frightening physically, um, and it is a little bit paranormal. I don't want to give too much away, but what I will say is thank God there's no sexual violence or any sort of, you know, deeply unsettling crimes against children. Uh, it's, it's more... It's, it's more psychological uh, than it is sort of uh, physical violence, thank heaven. So I'm happy to inform you guys on that one because the sexual violence against children is like horrific and no freaking way. We don't really need any more of that in this uh, <laughs> chamber of horrors. Um, so Gary, Gary in this story for me is such a hero and he's so memorable. What's nice is he begins the story as an old man and he ends it as an old man and there's a lot of power and reflection on this one day in his life as a little boy and how it just changed everything. So Gary is my hero and please uh, walk and, or pardon me, please run and don't walk to read, to read Man in the Black Suit, guys. It's extraordinary. It's really a standout five-star amazing story experience. So my honorable mention is we're back to the story of LT's theory of pets is um, the DeWitt family, which is LT, his wife Lulu Bell, and their dog and cat, uh, Frank the Jack Russell, and Lucy the cat, but um, Lulu Bell doesn't like her and calls her Screw Lucy, which is <laughs> amazing and very cheeky. So the DeWitt family is shining really bright in terms of just comedy gold. They're a newly married couple. They're super in love, and for Anna anniversary gifts, they give each other a dog and a cat, and it really just exploits the worst parts of them, and they start to unravel because of these pets. And so, as I mentioned previously, the ending is pretty shocking and definitely did not see it coming, nor did I see the shift in tone coming. 
in terms of how drastic it would be um, but they're great they're great and what's cool about LT's theory of pets is the narration's really unique because it's being told by LT's co-worker so these characters are kind of echoes of this one mysterious narrator's ideas and hearsay so it's it's a really cool um, story in its construction so my villain um, I feel the biggest bad in this entire collection is the heinously evil, monstrous room 1408. <laughs> I know it's a little silly um, and maybe a little bit of a stretch, but there's nothing more evil in this collection, guys. Um, for those of you who saw the two, 2007 film starring John Cusack, um, 1408 is crazy and really scary and that movie was a little too scary for me. Um, I made it through most of it and enjoyed it, um, but this story is really cool in the main character just being that non-believer who goes to seemingly haunted, in quotes, locations and only doing it to sell books, to pay bills. He's, he's absolutely a disbeliever and then when he gets to the Dolphin Hotel in New York City, Mr. Olin, the manager, is like, please, I beg you, please do not go in there. Like, you don't understand. People go in there and they die. They have massive brain aneurysms. They go blind. Like, this place is legit awful. Please don't do it. He's begging him not to. So, of course, when we're told we can't do something, it makes us want it all the more. Like, all the people violating quarantine. Side note. Um, but... So Mike enters into 1408 and he's only in the room for 70 minutes. Contrary to the film where it's a lot longer, there he's only in there for 70 minutes and uh, this story, guys, was a lot for my um, little fluffy heart. I, I was gasping. My heart was pounding. It's so well done. Um, the gothic creepiness, we have it all in this story. It's like the perfect sandwich because not only do we have the haunted hotel, very much like the haunted homes we see in other gothic novels like Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, where we get that spooky, spooky haunting stuff, or Shirley Jackson's um, The Haunting of Hill House or we have always lived in the castle those are some of my favorites so shout out to those but we also have art inside room 1408 that's also coming to life and is creepy and violent and gross and unsettling so we've got art coming to life we also have my least favorite only because it was truly terrifying is um, the phone inside 1408 when Mike Enslund picks it up there's a voice on the other oh my god you guys i'm gasping just talking about it um there's a voice on the other end of the phone and what it says just chilled me it's it's just creepy um it's more than creepy it's terrifying and it's burned in my brain guys and it's subtle that's the thing it's it's subtle there's it, if you were to read the sentence out loud you're like this isn't scary at all but when it's all combined it's it's a lot. Um, it's an experience for sure. So room 1408 is my villain. Do not go in there, guys. Do not go to the Dolphin Hotel. Do not go in there. It is, I think, even worse than the Overlook in certain aspects. For those who have um, experienced The Shining, I, I, I think I could handle Mrs. Massey in 237. I do. I think I could do it because the Dolphin Hotel room is, or pardon me, 1408 I think is a little bit worse, in which I would love to hear your thoughts. De let's debate. <laughs> let's debate. Do you think the Overlook is worse in general or... Or rather, do you think Mrs. Massey, the creepy dead lady in the bathtub's room, is worse? Or do you think 1408 is worse? I think that would be a very fun discussion to have and we could hash it out on an episode. So I would love to hear from you guys on that. Um, so that about rounds it out. It was a smaller section. We have Gary, the precious angel from The Man in the Black Suit, uh, a story that was fantastic. We have um, the DeWitt family, LT and Lulu Bell, Screw Lucy the Cat, and Frank the Jack Russell, and then 1408, the most sinister, terrifying villain of this entire short story collection. 
So uh, for those of you who are interested in reading this collection, I do recommend. It's really, really cool. Um, I do not agree that it's 14 Dark Tales. I think there's at least three of them that aren't dark at all. Um, however, if you are a first-time Stephen King reader, I would not recommend this collection due to the fact of that giant beyond giant novella of the little sisters of Aloria, which is a dark tower story it's it's just too long i think if it was shorter i would have no problem recommending this collection to a new stephen king reader but because it is so lengthy i want to say um please shelve until a later time uh either read dark tower first or um avoid this collection for just a little while um, until you have some street cred under your belt. Um, in other collections I think would be much more easy to digest. Many friends of mine recommend Night Shift. Uh, that is a very early Stephen King short story collection from the 70s. It's got all of the spookiness so if you're really wanting that exposure to the creepy I think that one's a good one if you are inclined in that area. But um, if you investigate some of the other ones I think you're more likely to have a mixed bag or you can follow in in yours truly's footsteps when Kim C read Full Dark No Stars about seven years ago. So uh, that collection is a series of novellas, so it's four novellas. Highly recommend and I cannot wait to talk about that collection with you guys because every single story in that compilation is kick-ass and wonderful and so rich in things to investigate. So we're going to be talking about that here pretty soon. Coming up, we've got our next novel is going to be Joyland, which is, oh man, I I just swooned for that novel, guys. I can't wait to talk about it with you. We have Joyland, and I think our next short story collection after that is going to be Just After Sunset. So if you want to start reading those and have a little bit under your belt before we start those episodes, I highly recommend. So I so appreciate you guys for listening, and and, um, diving into this collection with me, please send me an email at underratedsk at gmail.com as I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the stories, especially the ones that are slightly controversial in my thoughts and my perspective. I'm always open to new ideas and new points of view because these stories are dear to me. Um, all of Stephen King's works are things that I love to explore all the time, anytime. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys in the future. So please take care and I will see you when we head into Joyland. <laughs>